The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm one of the pastors here. And friends, it is good to be with you. Uh, if you're a guest or a visitor, we're glad that you're with us. And uh, you're joining us in the midst of a sermon series in the book of 1 John. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 John. We'll be looking at a portion out of chapter 2 this morning. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. You can follow along there. And, and if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one uh, and would like one, please take that one in the chair. It's yours. It's our gift to you. We would love for you to have it. But first John chapter 2. Now, uh, from a few weeks ago, if you were with us, you'd remember that uh, I said that one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why John is writing this letter to this group of churches in the region of Ephesus is to assure them of their faith. Their faith is coming under attack. There may be uh, shaking in their faith. There may be uh, doubting or questioning for a variety of reasons. But, but he's calling them to know and to believe that they are of the faith. To know and believe that they are Christ. We hear it in chapter 5. We're going to get to that passage still in a few weeks. I've said that multiple times. One day we will get there, I promise. We, we will make it to chapter 5. But, but that's what he tells us, that that he's writing so that we would know Christ and we would know the faith that he has given. But why do we need that assurance? What causes us to sometimes doubt, sometimes to quiver? Well, no doubt sin does, right? The sinfulness of our own hearts sometimes causes us to doubt. The world around us causes us to question. We witness those who walk away from the faith and it causes us concern. And it's that third problem right there that John's addressing in our passage. That there are those in their midst who, who one day had, who had one time believed or said that they believed, who had professed faith in Christ, but, but at some point they had abandoned the faith. And so what are we to do? How do we respond when confronted by those who abandon the faith? Well, John tells us in 1 John, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2. He writes, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge." I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie... 
just as he has taught you, abide in him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do know that your word is true. And we know that your spirit leads us into truth. And so we pray that that would happen now. That you would open our eyes and soften our hearts. That you would lead us into your truth. That you would show us the way. Father, we desire to abide in you, to cling to you, to hold fast to you. And so help us to do that even now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now there's a tradition that's common amongst a variety of college football teams. There are a number of teams that, that swear that they are the ones who first did it, who are the originators of this tradition. Alabama, Miami, some others, they all claim that they're the first ones to have started. But, but regardless of who started this tradition, it is spread. Most college football teams do this tradition, and it's even seeped down into the high school ranks. It's a tradition of holding up four fingers. Y'all have seen this, right? At the end of the third quarter, you look up at the scoreboard. It's registering zero on the time. The third quarter has ended, and you look down on the field, and the players walking around, the players on the sidelines, the coaches, the, the people in the stands around you. What are they doing? They're holding up four fingers. Now, why are they doing this? It's not because they don't know how to count, right? These are college athletes. They know four comes after three. It's not because the scoreboard is broken and they, they have to be reminded, oh yeah, it's the last quarter. No, it, it's a way of declaring to one another that the game is almost over. That, that there is 15 minutes left, that they've played hard and they've given all that they could for the last 45 minutes, but there's 15 minutes remaining and so they have to push hard. They have to press on. It doesn't matter how tired they are. It doesn't matter how sore they might be. It doesn't matter if they've rolled an ankle or sprained a knee. They push on for one more quarter. They've got one more quarter to hold fast, to press on. It's the fourth quarter. And that's what John's telling us. He's telling us that in the course of redemptive history, we are in the fourth quarter. If there's one quarter remaining, he says, in the very beginning, children, it is the last hour. We know that it is the last hour. You see, what John is telling us is that the end times, those times that may, many people might think are off in the distant future that we're waiting for, is actually now. It is today. Now, I know that that's contrary to maybe some ways that people think about the end times. We think about this day that will one day come that, that is going to have this like post-apocalyptic feel to it, right? That there will be wars and rumors of wars and all sorts of different things. But, but what John is telling us, and actually what the New Testament tells us, is that the end times is not a time off in the distant future that we're waiting for. It is now. We see it in Hebrews chapter 2 and 1 Peter 1 and James 5 and this passage that this is the last hour, that this is the fourth quarter. And because it's the fourth quarter, we're called to hold fast. We're to hold fast for one more quarter. And we're to hold fast because there are going to be those in this last hour, in this fourth quarter, who are going to deny the faith. That's what John says, right? It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Now, just like as soon as we hear end times, things come to our minds, I guarantee you when you hear Antichrist, things come to your minds. 
right? Things maybe like a demonic power or some sort of supernatural being, right? We have this horrible idea of like maybe, I don't know, horns or pitchfork, you know, all this sort of thing that comes to our mind that the culture tells us about what this antichrist is. Or maybe the way in which some circles promote this, right? It's some present or very near future leader. This is going to be the antichrist. And so, right, you guys have heard this stuff. Right? Every couple of years I get cards or uh, I see stuff online that talk about like Antichrist is here, he's coming, he's about to, you know, and it's a world leader or it's about to be a world leader or something. Right? Y'all, if you haven't seen it, ask me. I've taken pictures. <laughs> but when John talks about Antichrist, do you, did you see how he described it? Now, John's the only New Testament writer who actually uses this term, Antichrist. And when he does, what does he say? He says that there are many antichrists who have come. Many, not just one. Many. And then he describes antichrist. Who is the liar? In verse 22, who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so we hear that the spirit of Antichrist is what? Is that of denying Jesus as the Christ. It's denying Jesus as the Messiah. And that's all that Christ means, right? You all know this, Jesus Christ. That's not his full name. That's not his first and last name, right? It's not John Penny Legion, Jesus Christ, right? Did you all know my name was John? Anyway, but, um, but it, it's, it's a title, It's a title that he is the Messiah. That's what Christ means. The one who is the hope of the Old Testament. The one who would bring peace to God's people. The one who would draw us to the Father. That is the Messiah. That is Jesus. And it's becoming very clear as we read this letter and as we look at this passage that there are those in the church to whom whom John is writing who had once worshipped with the church, had once sung with them, had once prayed, had taken vows, who had partook of the supper, but now denied Jesus. They deny that he is the Christ. Now listen, y'all, there are many secondary and tertiary things that good, Bible-believing, faithful Christians can disagree over. Right? There are theological issues like millennial views or the length of days in the creation account. There are cultural issues, right? Like how do we engage with the culture broadly speaking? Or how do we best educate our children? Or what are the proper ways to appropriate politics, right? There, there are good and faithful Christians who are going to disagree on those issues. That we can still be members together, lock arms together, affirm one another But there's one thing that we cannot differ on. There is no room for disagreement around who Jesus is. That our entire faith and all of Christianity is built on who Jesus is. And the resounding message of the Bible is that he is the Christ is that he is the one the Old Testament has been waiting for, and he is the one that our hopes and our desires find meaning in. He is the Messiah. 
Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this truth of who Jesus is, is what John is speaking about in verse 23. He says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Verse 25, this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. You see, what John is declaring is that you cannot have the Father apart from Christ. You cannot have eternal life apart from the Son. Now listen, this is very different than the way in which the world appropriates Jesus, isn't it? I mean, our world doesn't appropriate Jesus this way. Our world tries to flatten Jesus, to reduce him, right, to simply a moral teacher or a wise sage or a great example. And there is no question he is those things, right? I mean, Jesus was the most moral of teachers, and he was the wisest of sages, and and he is the greatest example, but he is more than that. That is not all he is. C.S. Lewis, taking up that question of how the world thinks about Jesus, he says this, I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And they say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis goes on and says, this is the one thing we must not say. For a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You see, friends, to declare that Jesus is not the Christ, that he is not the way to the Father, that he is not the truth, is to deny the truth and to promote and embrace lies. It is to deny the faith itself. But those who denied the faith in this last hour, in this fourth quarter, they didn't simply deny the faith, they also departed from the faith. We see John saying, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So you see what's happening, right? There are those groups of people who claimed to believe, who professed that they trusted in Christ, who joined to the church, but they walked away. John is saying that though their outward appearance for a time looked as though they were part of God's people, in reality, they never were. It's reminiscent of what Jesus said in that last day, when he said that there will be some who come who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And Jesus will say to some of them, be gone from me, I never knew you. Y'all, that is a terrifying verse. That there would be some who would walk or appear to walk with the Lord and then fall away. Well, this informs how we're to understand those people of what might happen. It's, this passage is actually quite helpful because we've seen it, haven't we? If you've been around the church long enough, you've seen pastors, elders, deacons, leaders, lay people, friends and family, people who you saw coming faithfully to church every Sunday, 
people who you heard professing faith in Christ, you've seen this happen, but only to find them turning away, denying and departing from the faith. And what John is telling us is that they, tru- they never truly believed. Friends, it's in the face of this kind of turning and departing and denying that our faith can be shaken, right? I mean, to, to watch someone that we know and we love, to walk away, to deny, to follow, I mean, that can cause our faith to shake. It can cause our hearts to quiver. But what we're called to do in this last hour is to hold fast. Even in the face of departure, even in the face of denying, we are called to hold fast. And how do we hold fast? By abiding. Abiding in the truth. That's what John says in verses 20 and 21. You have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. And later he says, his anointing is true. So John is talking about the anointing that takes place by the Holy Spirit. That when we are called by the Spirit and we are brought into the people of God and we have been redeemed and justified and we have been regenerate, that, that the Holy Spirit anoints us. He comes upon us and in this anointing he is confirming to us that we are part of God's people. That we belong to Christ. It's similar to the way in which Paul speaks about the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1 when he says that the Spirit is a seal, a guarantee of our inheritance, a seal of our salvation. Y'all have seen seals before. Some of you have seen my seal. I have a seal. I know it's really dorky and it's, you know, I should have been born like 200 years ago. But, but every once in a while I write letters and notes and on the back of the envelope I'll melt a little bit of wax and it, it you know, the, the dollop shows up on the back of the envelope and I take a brass, brass seal and I stamp it with a P and it goes out. And if you ever get that and you see it, you see that P and you know it's mine. It's mine. These are my words. It's a way of declaring that these are my words. They're not Kat's. They're not Andrew's. They're not Tobias's. This is my word that's coming to you. Well, that's what the Spirit is to us. You see, the Spirit is is the one who anoints us, who seals us, and confirms that we are Christ's. That we belong to him. And when he does this, he doesn't simply assure us and confirm that we belong to Christ. He leads us into the truth. The truth that we've already heard. The truth that we abide in. Did you see that? That's what John is saying. It's not some sort of holding fast to a hidden truth or a newly discovered piece of knowledge. See, commentators think that that may have been what was going on here to some degree. That there were people coming into the church and they were saying, well, well, we know you've heard the gospel. We know you've heard about John. You've maybe heard about Paul. You've heard these sorts of things. But, but believe in this little bit of knowledge that we found out about. It's a little bit of truth. Some think that it was a proto-Gnostic kind of view of, of Jesus and of the scripture. And, and we experience this too, right? Like these new things that pop up, like the Gospel of Thomas, right? And now we're supposed to have this clear understanding of who Jesus is. But, but what is John saying? You've already heard the truth. You've already received this knowledge You already know. That's what he said, right? He says, I'm writing to you not because you don't know, but because you do know. Abide in this truth. 
This truth that is unchanging. This truth that is unfaltering. This truth. It's what he says in verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And so we hold to what we already know. What we know about Jesus and his gospel and about his truth. So how do we know that we're abiding in the truth? I mean, how do we know that that prompting in our heart is in line with the Spirit and not the deception of our hearts? How do we know that that little little feeling, that twinge in our stomachs is the Spirit and not just something bad we ate for breakfast? We have to ask ourselves, is that prompting in line with God's Word? Is that prompting, is that stirring, is it in line with the truth? Is it leading us towards greater Christ-likeness? We have to ask ourselves, those thoughts that we are thinking, that we are contemplating, that we are, that we are flirting with, are, are these thoughts that are leading us to greater purity, to greater holiness, or, or to greater sin? Those words that are on the tips of our tongues are are these words that are going to be used for the building up of another, for the, for the promoting of what is true and right and beautiful, or, or is it to bring another down, to tear them apart? Are the things that we're about to do with our hands and our feet, the, the actions we're about to do, are, is it leading us towards greater Christ-likeness or away from it? Friends, if the answer is this in line with Scripture and towards Christ-likeness, if the answer is no, then that is not of the Spirit. Because abiding in the truth means that we will become more and more like Christ. Abiding in the truth means we will abide in Christ. And that's actually the second thing that John says about how we hold fast. We abide in the truth, and as we abide in the truth, we abide in Jesus Look at verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And then he sends, says at the end of our passage, abide in him. Now this language of abiding is very reminiscent of what Jesus said in John 15, right? Where John, Jesus in John 15 says, I am the true vine. Right? He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He likens us, his disciples, his followers, as branches. And what he says is that as we are connected to the vine, as we abide in him, that is when we bear fruit. And so he's saying, abide in me. Abide in me, right? That's what Jesus says. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Abide. In this last hour, when there are those who will depart and who will deny, John calls us to abide, to hold fast. And we do this not by gritting our teeth. We don't abide in our own strength because if we did that, friends, we will fail. We will never hold fast if it's just because of how strongly, how how strong my grip is. No, we abide in Christ. We hold fast to him because to hold fast to something else or to abide in ourselves will just mean that we will be set adrift. You see, to abide in ourselves is like a boat that's left 
untied at the side of the dock. Y'all have seen this, right? You, you go out to the lake, you go out on a boat, and when you pull back up to the dock, what, everybody's jumping off the, the, the boat, and we're jumping on the dock, and we're grabbing ropes, and we're tying it up as quickly as we can. Because we know that if we don't tie it up, if we don't secure it to the dock, that, that it might remain there for a few minutes, for a few hours. But we know that eventually, eventually the water and the current The wind and the waves will eventually send the boat drifting away from the dock into open water. But if it's tied up, despite the water, despite the current, despite the wind and the waves, it remains held to the dock. And y'all, the same is true of us. If we do not abide in Jesus, if we don't hold fast to him, we will drift We will drift into deception, into denial, into departure. But we hold fast. We hold fast because, friends, there are winds. And there is a last hour. It is now. We are in the fourth quarter. But the good news, as someone reminded me, is there is no overtime. There is no tie. We know the victory. We know who wins this game. We know what the final score will be and who the victorious one will be when the scoreboard registers zero. The fourth quarter we are in, but we know that Christ will win. And we know that Christ has the victory. And we know that in this fourth quarter we are called to hold fast by abiding in his truth and abiding in him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have not left us to ourselves or to our own devices, but you have given us your spirit, this one who has anointed us, who has sealed us, who has confirmed to us that we are Christ's. And so we pray as those who have been anointed, those who have been sealed, that we would abide in your truth, that you would turn our eyes towards your word and we would focus upon it, that we would abide in Jesus so that this day and all of our days, we would rest in him, we would trust in him, we would walk in him, so that you would be made much of and it would go well for your people. And so help us to abide in Christ today. We pray this in Christ's name. And God's people said together, Amen.